Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. If you've got a Bible, I want you to grab it and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Um, let us read and then we'll pray. Let's read together corporately. Ready? Read. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today, God. We thank you that we're here. We thank you, God, that you gave us breath today. We thank you, Father, that we have another day to worship you. So, Father, we don't want to take that for granted just because we're here, we're in church, and we turn on our TVs, and we can seem so disconnected and so far away from something that happens in another place. But, Lord, let us never take for granted that that type of thing can happen to us while we worship. And so, Father, I pray that when we see that it would compel us not to be indifferent or be apathetic, but I pray that it would compel our hearts, God, to worship you that much more, to appreciate you and give you praise while we have breath in our lungs. And so, Father, we just want to honor you and lift you up today, God. We pray for those who are in Dayton. We pray for those who are in El Paso, Texas. God, we pray that you would be comfort to their, to their families, Lord. We pray, God, that you would be a healing balm for those that are that been hurt and have been hurt. But God, we we ultimately pray that people would look to you for answers, Lord. And to do, today, God, as we tackle a, a, a difficult subject, we realize that nothing is too difficult for you, that you are sovereign God, that you are all powerful and all knowing. And so, Father, I just pray today that Christ Jesus would be exalted and lifted up. We pray that we would see Christ in light of what we study. And so, Father, let it compel our hearts. Let us feel so compelled, God, to share what we've gained with our neighbors, Lord. And so, Lord, we just give you glory and honor. We pray you get the glory and honor out of the message today, God. I pray, Lord, that, that as you increase, I decrease. Father, I'm just a vessel here to preach your word, God. And I pray for the heart and for the ears of your hearers, God, that we would hear the word and we would receive it and that we would hold it near to our heart, God, and that we would be transformed by it. And so, Lord, we just thank you today. We give you glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. Men, you may be seated. My sermon title today is Recovering Work. Recovering Work. Throughout history, there have always been objections to Christianity that have been posed as questions. These are some of the questions and objections that people pose to the Christian faith. Number one, if there is a hell, why would a loving God send people there? What about those that never heard about Jesus? Isn't it narrow minded to think that Jesus is the only way to God? 
If your God is so loving, why is there suffering in the world? If God is so good, why is there evil? How do you Christians explain the atrocities that have been committed by other Christians? I think a question like this one actually leads to a more nuanced perspective, especially if you place this question in the right cultural context. Let me repeat the question for you. How do you explain the atrocities that Christians have committed against other Christians? And once again, I'll say I think a question like this would lead one to ask a more nuanced question, to have a more nuanced perspective, especially if you place it in the right cultural context. One of the most pressing questions that Christians must be able to answer, especially for black and brown people, is this. In light of the fact of the 400 years of enslavement and degrading and unjust treatment of black people in America, does the Bible condone slavery? And if not, why doesn't it say something to condemn it? How could Christians say they believe in a God that says that all are made in his image and likeness, but yet and somehow enslave and debase other image bearers in the name of God? And so the church in America should never gloss over or excuse the years where it was complicit in the institution of slavery in America and either participated or was complicit by sitting in silence and not fighting for the defenseless. Nothing could be worse than the degrading and disgraceful act of stealing and terrorizing an entire group of people by other Christians. You see, this has not always been the perspective of Christians. Early church father of the 14th century, Gregory of Nyssa, said this, concluded, he concluded this about slavery. He said that God's creation of humanity, uh, that slave ownership was a sin and it's an affront to God. 16th century famous theologian John Calvin said this, slavery is totally against all the order of nature. But I will bring it even closer and closer to home to a slave that was a Christian. An abolitionist leader and once advisor to both Presidents Lincoln and Johnson and the first African-American to appear on a presidential ballot, also one of the most famous former slaves in history, Frederick Douglass wrote in his autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, he said this, were I to be again reduced to the chains of slavery, next to enslavement, I should regard being the slave of a religious master, the greatest calamity that could befall me. For all, for of all slaveholders with whom I have ever met, religious slaveholders are the worst. I have ever found them the meanest and basest, the most cruel and cowardly of all others. As of uh, 1776, the Quakers were the only denomination in, the, uh, in America to declare that slaveholding was a sin. So the church was complicit in slavery. And so here's the thing that happens in our day and our culture. The misconception is that Europeans gave Africans the Bible to enslave them. But the truth of the matter is, is that all of the early church fathers from Origen, from Athanasius to Cyprian to Cyril, to people you've never heard of from Africa shaped how Americans see the Bible. The idea of the Trinity did not come from anybody from Europe. The idea of the Trinity, God, Father, and Holy Spirit, God, God the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit came from an African by the name of Origen. And so Christianity is not a European idea. Just look at a map. 
And you can see where it starts and you can see that Africa sits right there. And so we must not be fooled by what we hear by a conscious community in America about the, orig the origins of Christianity. And I will also say this, there was a high resistance to slave convergence within the first 100 years of slavery. Slave owners did not want slaves to get the gospel of Jesus Christ. White slave masters knew what could happen if Africans actually got a grasp of the gospel. If Africans started reading that God made all people in his image, there was a real fear that if they truly understood, they would learn that their lives had equal value with their masters. And if they got this and they got a hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would no longer be able to contain them. So what happened was that during those times they began to share with slaves a limited gospel. They gave them an edited version of the full gospel so that they can keep them in a lesser position. So yes, they used it for a period of times as a means of social, social control, but you can't tame the gospel no more than you can tame a lion in the wilderness. And so if you're asking the question that I posed at the outset, does the Bible condone slavery or does the Bible condemn it? Well, you have to look no further than Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. It says this, whoever kidnaps someone, that's what slavery was, kidnapping. Whoever kidnaps someone either to sell him or to keep him as a slave is to be put to death. So for God's people to enslave anyone was punishable by death. So I want to say this to you, just because someone used something that is good for a means of evil doesn't make the whole thing bad. One of the pictures of the gospel in itself is that of freedom from bondage. When Israel found themselves in Egyptian slavery, God came and set them free. Our God is a God of justice and compassion. He stands against oppressors and cares for the vulnerable in the world. Jesus himself said that I came to set the captives free. And so Christianity is a release the captives type of faith. And so God does not want you to be in slavery or in bondage physically or spiritually. And so to steal physical property or person was the breaking of the eighth commandment. What's the eighth commandment, pastor? Do not steal. This was for kidnappers, enslavers, or for slave dealers. And so this apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 through 24 in the Message Bible. Here's what he says. Stay where you were when God called you. Here's what he does. He doesn't skate around it, but he acknowledges it. Were you a slave? Slavery is no roadblock to obeying and believing. I don't mean you're stuck and can't leave. If you have a chance of freedom... So, Joy the Truth, if you have a chance at freedom, Harry Box Brown, if you have a chance at freedom, William and Ellen Craft, if you have a chance at freedom, Harriet Jacobs, if you have a chance at freedom, Harriet Tubman, if you have a chance at freedom, Frederick Douglass, go ahead and take it. I'm simply trying to point out that under the, your new master, which is Christ, you're going to experience a marvelous freedom you have never dreamed of. On the other hand, if you were free when Christ called you, you experienced a delightful enslavement to God you had never dreamed of. All of you, slave and free, were once held hostage in a sinful society. Then a huge sum, I love the gospel, a huge sum was paid out for your ransom. So please don't, out of old habit, slip back into being or doing what everyone else tells you. Friends, stay where you were Called to be, God is there, 
Hold the high ground with him at your side. Does this sound like a religion that enslaves people? In his book on African-American religious history, This Far By Faith, writer Juan Williams writes, Africans did not simply adopt religion of the European colonists. They used the power, principle, and practices of Christianity to, to, to blaze a path to freedom and deliverance. Not only did they blaze a path, but the path was so big that it reformed Christian theology as well as Christianity itself. Everything about the gospel undercuts the establishment of slavery. And the simple fact that Paul addresses slaves in his letter speaks to the fact that he saw them as having dignity and value and worth in God's eyes. Wow. And so, Pastor, you just talked about the African-American slave experience. But what about the text that we're in today? Well, when Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, an estimated 60 million slaves were in the Roman Empire. 60 million slaves. There would have been a third of the people in a city like Ephesus that would have been slaves. And so slavery was an accepted part of the Mediterranean world's economic life. Christianity itself was still unlawful and Christians were politically powerless at the time. So therefore, you don't hear Paul outright saying, don't hold slaves. He's not saying it because Christians had no voice at the time in Rome. They were not dominant at that time. And so he didn't say anything. And so at the same time, slaves were constantly being free in the Roman Empire. And so here are a couple of fundamental differences between Greco-Roman slavery and American slavery. Theologian John Stott write this about, F, uh, um, about Greco-Roman slavery. He says this, they did not merely do many a work. They did nearly all the work, including oversight and management and most professions. Some slaves were more educated than their owners. They could own property, even slaves, and, and were allowed to save money to buy their freedom. No slave class existed, for slaves were present in all but the highest of economic and social strata. Many gained freedom by the age of 30. So, Pastor, what are you trying to say? That this type of slavery here was not slavery in perpetuity. This slavery had an end to it. So this slavery is fundamentally different. Also, back then, slaves could buy their way out of slavery. Slaves could own property. Slaves could invest their money back then. You could be a slave and still climb your way up the social and economic ladder. Slaves had upward mobility at that time. The slave was not intended to be a slave forever, and they could count on being free at some point. And so the second difference was how people actually became slaves. Back in these days, people became slaves through birth, through parental selling or abandonment, a captive from war, their inability to pay their debts, and a voluntary attempt to improve your economic condition. You would put yourself in slavery. And so a person could sell themselves into slavery as a means to obtain Roman citizenship and gain interest into society. Here's what I want you to know the difference between Greco-Roman slavery and African-American slavery was. Race was not a factor. This was economic. And so the condition of these slaves, depending on the discretion of the owner, he chose to treat the slave however he saw fit, whether good or bad. Sometimes slaves were beaten. They were whipped. They were mutilated. Um, but some slaves had much more liberty. Some slaves actually lived separately from their owners, whereas American, African-American slavery was predicated on race and was intended to be lifelong. In Paul's day, it was not racial and it was never intended to be in perpetuity. 
But here's the thing, nonetheless, the institution of slavery existed and therefore Paul wants to give Christians instructions because there were Christian slaves and there were Christian slave owners. But because we've been transformed by the gospel and we live after the fall, no matter what condition we find ourselves in, our character must still be influenced by the gospel, even if we must work and labor in imperfect and sometimes hostile work environments and with unbelieving people. And so many, when they preach this text, they move right away from the slavery element. But in my context and being fair to the text, I can't skip over what is written in God's word. I would rather deal with it. But where does this fall, Pastor? It falls under the idea of work and labor. And so here's what Paul says in verse five. Slaves, obey your human masters. Notice he puts the word human there. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. He says, as you would Christ. He's saying, give reverence and give recognition that you are in a subordinate position. Give reverence to whoever you're working under and recognize that you are in the inadequate or the weak position because you are under somebody else's authority. But at the same time, he says, obey them with sincerity of heart. What he's saying is be faithful in wherever you find yourself. Be faithful in your work. It's an inner, uh, an inner sincerity, like you are actually working wholeheartedly. And he's saying you do that, you obey them just like you would as if you were working for Christ. You obey the person that you are working for. Even if you don't like your boss, you obey them like you would if you were working for Christ. You see, man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at your heart. And so it is not that your employer represents Christ. Your employer is not Christ. What he's saying is it's the opposite. The master slash employer is actually factored out of the equation and he's replaced with the Lord. So you're not actually working for them. You're working for Jesus. And so now that changes our approach to work. Not just when they are around or in the office, but whether my boss is in the office or not, we serve a boss that's always in the office. We serve a boss that never goes on vacation. We serve a boss that never takes an extended lunch break. Therefore, I can take an extended lunch break because I know when he's coming back. So here's what he says in verse, verses 6 through 7. I want you to notice this. Don't only work while being watched. As people pleasers. Notice this. But as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude. As to the Lord and not unto people. Let's, think, let's look at verses 6, 7 again. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Look at verse 7 at the end. As to the Lord. And I want you to see his Christ-centered commands in regards to how we do work. That even your work should be Christ-centered. And so when we work to please people, it will always leaving you doing the bare minimum just to get by or doing just enough that you think that whoever you're working for can't notice when you ain't, when you ain't working. Number one, let me say this to you. Whomever you work for or under is not dumb. They know when you slack, even when they don't say anything. They want to fire you, but won't because it would be too expensive to fire you and hire somebody else. Don't fool yourself. Number two, and most important, and it should scare you to death, God is always watching you work. 
When you do your best, he sees it. And when you give far less than your best, he sees it. And so he says, work as slaves of Christ. So let me give you a nugget. When you can't transfer jobs, you can transfer masters. I want to leave this job because I can't stand my boss. That ain't always convenient. That ain't always easy. It takes a long time to find a new job. It takes a long time for them indeed hits to start coming back to you. It takes a while. But when you can't transfer jobs, you can't transfer masters. And here's what he says. Do God's will from your heart. Do, do, why would he say that in the context of work? Do God's will for your heart. What he's saying is, is that doing your best at your job is God's will for your life. Oh, I, oh, you thought God's will was going to take place when you got the job you wanted. <laughs> he says, no, you do God's will when you faithful where God has put you in this season of your life. He says, you be faithful when you make $10 an hour or you make $50 an hour. He says, you be faithful right here, making 40 grand a year or making 100 grand a year. You be faithful wherever you are, not faithful when you think you got the job that you deserve. And so God is not going to give you a pass at work because you are a Christian and you go to church. He expects better work from you because you are a Christian and you do belong to him. And so let me say this, your job is a great place to make the gospel look good to unbelievers. You make the gospel look beautiful by how you work. And so here's what he says, and I think it's very important to me. In verse 7, he says, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Shout out to all the people that go to work sometimes with a bad attitude. He says the quality of your work and your attitude should match. You see, you think it's just the quality of the work that you do. That, that it's okay that I do the job, and I, I do what I'm supposed to do, but my attitude sucks while doing it. Well, that ain't how God views work. God says, I want your work to be pristine, but I need your attitude to match the, how, the way you work. Because I'm not just looking at your work, I'm looking at the heart behind your work. Yeah. And see, some of us can get away, we do just a bad man, we do just, here, take this by five o'clock. Here it is, I turned it in, get off my back. God is like, that's the perspective of somebody that doesn't, doesn't realize that the only reason you got a job is because of me. And so the attitude while working oftentimes comes from a lack of appreciation for having a job in the first place. It is a blessing and a gift from God to be able to work. You don't believe me. When Adam is in the garden, the first thing that God gives him is not a wife. <laughs> he gives him a job. He says, you sit right here and you make this better than the way I gave it to you. And so God expects you. Notice he doesn't make the first man a CEO. He makes him a gardener. And he's expected to be faithful in that responsibility. See, what you don't realize is in Greco-Roman context, freedom was often limited merely to the attitude you took while you were doing your job. So if your attitude sucked, but you got the job done, it limited your freedom. It's amazing how we celebrate God. When we get a new job. We start a new career. Thank you, Jesus. Yes. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I got the job. They responded. I interviewed. They just called me. I got the job. I'm about to go into my old job, put in this two week notice like I'm throwing down an ace of spades at the card table. Here, take this two weeks notice. Thank you, Jesus. I got a new job. And then in one year less. God, this job is horrible. I hate everybody here. 
Why did your attitude change? We go from praising like the job came from God to complaining like the job came from Satan. And so, so, so here's what you need to understand. You got a job on earth, not in heaven. No job is without issues because there are sinners there. One of which is you. <laughs> what happens is that our perspective is warped from the beginning. To begin with, we praise God for getting us a job, but we work like we are pleasing man. You never realize that you are always working for God. It was never for man to begin with. And we as believers work with our eyes and our hearts toward the Lord. And this is for everybody in the room that does shabby work, that is lazy, that does just enough to get by, that complains when you say thank you, that dreams about freedom and having all the resources, but not willing to work like it. Let me say this to my millennials in here. Everybody won't and can't be an entrepreneur. Bossed up. I'm a lady boss. Okay. If we're all bosses, who is going to do the day-to-day -day operations? Some of us have so big, so my dreams are so big. But we don't got a big work ethic. One of our favorite shows is Shark Tank. And the other night we were watching it, and I believe Mark Cuban said this thing, and I had to, we had to write this thing down. He said, entrepreneurs are willing to work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40. Let me say that again so that registers and rings in your head. Entrepreneurs are willing to work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40. So you, oh, you think you're going to be an entrepreneur because you want to do less work. <laughs> Silly you. When you have a business or a company, sleep is hard to come by. When you got the responsibility of employees and other people's livelihood in your hands and lawsuits and insurances to, to take care of and people asking you for raises and people asking you for promotions and you got to balance a budget and you got to make money for your shareholders, that's a lot of pressure and it causes your life to be eaten away by and are you willing to, work to pay that price when you can't even work a straight 40? That's why my boss is in the room. I'm not saying go be an entrepreneur, don't be an entrepreneur, but what I'm saying is stop thinking something is wrong if you are not rich or you aren't a CEO. You dishonor and disrespect all the people who work nine to five. So stop looking down on people because you have a degree and they don't or, or, or whatever the case is. All work matters to God. I'm gonna have my own company. Jesus was a carpenter. Surely Jesus was going to be the CEO of something, right? Jesus Carpentry, LLC. <laughs> Meeting your home carpentry needs. But yet he's a carpenter. So don't be lazy and don't be unappreciative of the job you have. Let me say this. Something more than money should motivate you because of money and a perfect boss and perfect co-workers are the only thing that will keep you at a job you will never grow.
No, I'm not talking about grow your career. I'm talking about growing as a Christian. What you don't understand is work is not just an evangelistic tool. Work is also a tool of sanctification in your spiritual walk with God. Work sanctifies you. You don't know the type of patience that you have until you got an annoying coworker. You, you don't know the type of self-control you got to have with your tongue until you get a boss that says something crazy to you or treats you crazy and you can't say nothing back because you got bills to pay. Your job is just not for you to go up there and show what a Christian looks like. It is, but it is also about how you respond to challenges in life. You grow through your work. It's, it's, it's a sanctification tool to make sure that you are exhibiting and displaying and praying that God give you the fruit of the Spirit. You ain't got to know patience until you know that you've been stuck in a position and you can't get a promotion and you want to leave the job, but you can't, so you got to wait it out. That's patience. Yeah. And God is using that to teach us and grow us. But even if you've been at your job for a long time and they've treated you unfairly and you have not been rewarded and you ain't moved up the ladder and you ain't got a raise and they don't look at you and they don't say thank you, they don't pat you on the back, they don't appreciate you, they didn't give you your own parking space, they didn't put your photo up on behind the calendar like they did and uh, behind the wall like they did in coming to America, you're not employee of the month, none of that has ever happened for you. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 8 about God knowing that whatever good deed each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And so there is a great reward coming for those that serve God by serving others. And the best job evaluation you could ever get is for Jesus to say, well done. Well done. Verse 9. Verse 9 says this. Because it's not just one-sided. Since we've been going through, since we got to 21, chapter 5, verse 21, he says, submit to one another in reverence for Christ. He was talking about people in the church, other Christians submitting to one another. Then he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Boom. But that doesn't make husbands not have responsibility. He says, husbands, you have the responsibility to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Then he says, children, you got a responsibility too. Children, obey your parents. Tells them to honor their parents. This is the first command with a promise. But he doesn't just say that parents don't have no responsibility about how they treat their kids. They do. He says fathers in particular, don't provoke or exasperate your, exasperate your children to anger. Bring them up in proper instruction in the Lord. That's what he said. And then he brings the relationship all the way down to the level of work. Because you have to deal with people. And this relationship will always affect the, this relationship. And so he says, for you, those of you who are in the workplace, slaves, obey your masters. But guess what? The masters now have a responsibility. And here's what he says. And masters, treat your slaves the same way, key word, key phrase, without threatening them. Now, I want you to think about the context of slavery. Masters, treat your slaves the same way. What is he saying? You mean with reverence and respect? That's what he's talking about. Masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them. I need you to put in your critical thinking caps. Without masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them. 
Because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So to our level, employers, especially those that bear the name of Christ, are expected to treat all employees with dignity and with 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 honor. Also, if the person is a Christian and they are in a position of authority, they were supposed to adopt and take on the position of a slave. Especially to those that were under their authority. You don't believe me. Here's what happened with Jesus, with James and John tripping. We want to get a seat next to, to Jesus in, in heaven, in the kingdom. Here's what Jesus' response was. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 10, verses 42 through 45. Here's what he says. Jesus called him over and said, come here, I want to teach y'all a lesson. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And those in high positions, they act as tyrants or slave owners, but not so among you. If you ever get in a position where you are over somebody else, on the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you mean to tell me that if I'm in a position of authority, my job is not to rule and lord over people and make it hard for them. My job is to serve them. So if I'm supposed to serve them and I'm supposed to be their slave, how this going to work with slavery? And I can't threaten them. And I got to treat them the way they treat me. Remember, he's writing this letter to Christians in a church. And so if they have to serve slaves the same way they serve them, because they're image bearers, because, you know, when you become a Christian, you're not a slave to the world anymore. You actually become a son of God and you become a brother to other Christians. So being, I like the way Dr. Eric Mason says, being in God's family elevates your status from slave to son to a brother. So if I'm a slave owner and I'm a Christian, and the slave that I own is a Christian, he's not my slave. He's my brother. So now I got a problem. So if, if, if I got to become your slave and I can't threaten you with abuse, And if you're my brother, how can I have a relationship with you based on threats? How can anybody have any relationship with anybody based on threats or punishment? Because a relationship based on threats is no relationship at all. So I'm really struggling here to put the slave, to keep the slave master intact. Paul says, treat them the same way without threatening them. See, see, what you don't know here is that violence, the threat of violence was always the primary foundation of the institution of slavery. The slaves never knew when the violence was coming. And there was always this fear of terror that was over them. And so if there's a fear, then they have the capacity to control. But if I take away the threat of fear, then I can't control you. So if I have to treat them and show them reverence like I would Christ, and then I have to give up the threat of violence, how am I going to be able to control them? And right here, y'all missed it. Right here, without explicitly condemning slavery, Paul is undermining the very foundation of slavery. Paul has literally, in this passage, cut the thread that held the institution of slavery together. So if they give up the foundation, which is the threat, then they got to give up the institution. And so Paul right here is tearing down slavery right here in this passage. 
Because there's no way you can own a slave, treat him like a brother, treat him like you would Christ, and then not threaten him. You can no longer control him, which means you can no longer enslave him. And so the Bible is not condoning slavery. If anything, it is tearing it down piece by piece and brick by brick. So the next time one of your come to you talking about that's the man's religion, I want you to throw this at him. And so this same Paul, and I'm done, this same Paul said in Galatians 3 and 28, and the same Paul is saying it here, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male and female, since we are all one in Christ Jesus. And through the cross, Jesus has torn down every wall of separation. He's torn down every wall of sin between believer and God, every wall between Jew and Gentile, every wall between slave and free, rich and poor, young and old, black and white. If you are a believer, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Even if the law of the land is discriminatory and unjust, the law of heaven is not slave and master, employee and employer are both equal at the foot of the cross. And that is what recovering work looks like. That is what it looks like. And so no matter where you work or who you work for, there is an expectation from your real master, which is Christ, to honor him and work from your heart in all that you do. Your work matters no matter how insignificant you think it is. Everything we do matters to God even how we work. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.